0: Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is the brainchild behind the best Metroid fan project and one of the best fan projects period. AM2R. I'd like to welcome Dr. M64. How are you doing?
1: Hi, a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for taking time out. How did you get the name Dr. <laughs> Dr. M64, by the way?
1: Um, because uh, that was that. Back in the day, there was this website called 64digits.com. It was uh, pretty much a game maker community. And the nickname Dr. M was taken. So I went with 64, whatever. And that <laughs> nickname is, you know, from the neighborhood. People used to call me Dr. because um, I usually look like a very serious person. Right. Even if, uh, when, even if you know, when we're meeting with, uh, you know, uh, a couple of things in, and everyone, is smiling. I was actually kind of serious. So, yeah, he's he looks like a you know a very serious uh, lawyer or something. Just, <laughs> uh, he's he's the doctor, and that's kind of like you know where that particular nickname
0: nickname came from. Right, kinda. right. So, do your colleagues at Moon Studios call you Milton, or do they call you Doctor M? They no, they,
1: doctor? Call me, they call me Milton. <laughs> they do call me Milton. Yes.
0: Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously what you went through to get to where you are is an amazing story. And um, I'm so stoked for you, given the hard work that you put in all those years on AM2R. Were there any points that you considered, in, uh, considered throwing in the towel? where you like, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I putting myself through this? Uh, well, there
1: were too many. And uh, it's not about how difficult some the of these times were, because yep. there were quite a lot of very rough times in that time span. Uh, the thing is, it was a long time. Uh, Ten years is a long, long time, and yeah. my life changed a lot in that particular time span. I grew up as a person, and with all of the growing pains that come with life, uh, Having to keep this particular, uh, you know, personal project, was difficult, but was also kind of necessary for me. Trying to keeping my stuff together and putting my effort into something that uh, had a had a goal, it mm. meant something. It was something that was very necessary in some of those complicated times. Um, but then again. Uh, this would have been so much different if the community wasn't as involved as it is. There's very accepting and passionate people in the Method community. Um, you, you may think, OK, so this month, I'm going to be posting a blog post uh, explaining why I couldn't um, show any tangible progress. Right? Mm. Uh, I had some difficulties, some technical care of stuff, my computer was a mess. Whatever. This month, I cannot show any progress. I write a blog post, like, every month, and sometimes I was prepared to you know, get some backlash. You know, angry people saying, yo, why don't you work on the game? Come on, I, I'm waiting for you. And that didn't happen. People were super understanding about it. I got support. Even if I wasn't super explicit on the things that were happening to me, uh, people were there. They were super understanding, and that's super, super amazing. And not wanting to let down those people uh, that we're expecting the product to be done. Uh, that was one of the many factors that kept me going, you know.
0: Mm. So did you map out everything from the get-go? Like in terms of how were you ended up? So in terms of mapping out the actual map of the entire world and adding in additional things, was that fully mapped out from the get-go or were you constantly changing stuff around so- as, as you were developing it?
1: So about 80% of the contents was more or less there from the get-go, trying to apply the room sizes that I needed, you know, the typical uh, 320 by 240 screen Mm. uh, translated uh, pretty much with the GBA uh, sizes, that's 160 by 144, trying to translate those proportions into that particular um, size that my game engine was using. That base was there. Now, how much original content was going to be added, that changed over time a lot, up to the very last moment. Um, I, my main inspiration for this uh, kind of remake was the Metroid Zero Mission, mm. and uh, there's quite a lot of faithful landmarks that you can actually identify from the original game, but there's also a little bit of uh, new contents, and that's what's kept the game uh, pretty fresh. So I wanted to do something like that, up to which extent that's changed over time a lot. It started with a very uh, original area that pretty much was a skill test for you know testing the player's uh, battle skills uh, besides Metroid, mm. and that was uh, pretty much a failure. By the time the player reaches that particular area, they have so much power, uh, they have so many abilities that uh, whatever I threw at the player, uh, it was trivial. So. Pretty much uh, on the last stretch of the uh, development, I had to redesign the entire original area to pretty much have its own uh, particular gimmicks and limit the player in other ways, uh, also tying up with the mechanical design of uh, the environments. Mm. So yeah, whatever uh, ended up there ended up being pretty solid anyways, and uh, it has some ideas I've been you know, developing over the years. Again, having 10 years to uh, work and think uh, on, on what the environments are going to be is certainly nice. I mean, I was keeping... I, I always thought, isn't it weird that throughout the method series, there's so many uh, environmental puzzles and mechanisms that require a sphere to be perfectly fit into one location to actually activate something? Mm. I mean, what... What were the spheres in the Jozo society? Do you go with a key ring with several spheres? And, uh, okay, I got the uh, house keys. Okay, door opens. Does, how does the Jozo society operate those kind of uh, contraptions? And I found a pretty practical way to explain it in my original area. And, uh, yeah, it, it pretty much fit very well with the problems I was trying to solve.
0: Mm. So how did Skippy the bot come into it? yeah you know, obviously before before the fan game that you ended up making recently, but how far in development did that come about because that's a cool little section oh, yeah. <laughs> uh
1: you know what um I was kind of tired of the typical you know uh, i mean there was there's a very um typical set of uh, choices that a designer has uh, to break up the pace a little bit. Right? Right. So the easy answers are, let's trap the player between two walls and throw enemies. They clear the enemies and then they are free to go. That's mm-hmm. one way of doing that. Uh, the other one could be obligatory turret session. You're uh, infinite scrolling through an environment and there's enemies attacking and you're stationed there with uh, some sort of cannon. You can do that if you wish. That didn't apply to my particular game. And other way would be, okay, some quirky way to remote control something else. You don't see that very often. And I think in this particular area, where there's pretty much a, you know, a factory for robots, maybe this can, uh, could, can work. And I did try it. It sucked. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it took At one point, it took way much more time and effort than an actual level. It's only one screen. Yeah. And that layout changed so much. Uh, Skippy was originally going to be uh, a crane. You just remote control a crane, uh, left, right, uh, go down, pick up the thingy, and drop it wherever you need it. It worked. The prototype worked. It was super solid. It was amazing. It was uh, technically uh, functional, and it was boring. So, I added several hazards. So, you need to pretty much change the level of the crane to avoid some spikes or rotating thingies. You get, you get to see those spinny yeah, blades yeah. that have no logical explanation of what they do, but whatever. Um, you avoid those, and then, uh, okay, it's still boring. It's just move things through maze. So, pretty much uh, detaching the arm from whatever... The was in the ceiling felt right. Suddenly you have a character controller, right? And mm-hmm. suddenly you're not, uh, you're pretty much deta- detached from the mechanical side of the environment and you're on your own. And that proved to be a challenge. Uh, my logical step was to use the hopping bot, because that's already coded in the game. I just replicate that and only add a little bit of variety on how much the player is pressing the button to see how high they can actually hop around. It was fun making the layout that made sense and it's not super frustrating, that was another challenge. But uh, I think some people find it a little bit uh, longer. They need the amount of steps they need to take once they figure out the mechanics and what they need to do. But overall, it had a very good reception. It was a very nice change of pace in the middle of the typical let's go to an area, find all the metros, Find all the metros, oh, new in Evolution, whatever. Nobody see that, let's go, next, next area. Um, usually I use the bosses to change the pace and uh, have something different, but these kind of mechanical things, uh, every once in a while, felt nice. And uh, in this case, it worked quite well.
0: Hmm. Because you made the Flash game recently. How long did that actually take you to put all that together? Oh,
1: okay. Uh, that,
0: hmm. uh,
1: that thing is made with Unity. Yep. And um, one thing that I started getting a taste of lately is uh, game jams. There was one particular game jam that uh, caught my attention. Uh, it's the GB Jam. It's basically you have five days. I think it's more. I think it's a week mm. uh, where you have a uh, that limited time to make a game within the limitations of the Game Boy, mm. right? And okay, I'm familiar with this kind of limitations. I I'm not that good of a sprite artist, so limiting to myself to just four colors is going to be making it easier, I guess. And I set myself to remake um, a game from the Commodore 64. Um, I'm not sure if you ever heard of uh, Cybernoid for the
0: C64. Cybernoid? No, I don't think I have. Mm-hmm. But explain okay, anyway. It's... I'm sure uh, other people it's pretty have. Much,
1: imagine a shoot-em-up, yep. but your character ship is pretty much like a character controller from a platformer. You just move sideways, you can actually shoot side to two sides. You def- you explore different screens, like mazes, and the unique thing about that particular um, character control is that you have gravity. Every time you are not touching the joystick, the ship falls down to, to gravity. So besides having to navigate tricky obstacles and fight enemies, you need to keep pushing up to pretty much maintain your height. Mm. So it's uh, kind of like... Um, Gradius meets Flappy Bird meets Metroid. It's some very weird combination. Back in the day when people liked to experiment with uh, you know, new concepts, uh, it was super hard, but it was one of the classics that I did enjoy in my childhood. So I said, eh, maybe I can remake this and try to fit it in the tiny screen. And it was a very interesting ex- exercise on figuring out how many of the things uh, in that particular uh, production pipeline works in Unity. Mm. And uh, since I already had that laid out, and I had to prepare something for the anniversary, I said to myself, okay, so I have limited time to either finish my post-mortem that I've been planning for years, explaining how some of the technical aspects of the game were pulled off, uh, regarding how uh, Meritus were animated, how the skeleton animation of the queen was uh, uh, coded, and all the moving parts, um, how some of the elements of the map, and how um, the concepts began to be. That was a very fascinating project that uh, I'm still working on. And yeah, I wasn't able to finish it, so I guess I'll make a game. for myself. So yeah, I pretty much made that particular game in two weeks. And like before, wow. the character controller was the most complicated part to actually get right. Um, but again, this is all my free time, so um, finding a bit of free time in my complicated day to just try to make that uh, strange character that's going to be a mixture of co-op and getting over it to not be super frustrating was it took many revisions you know mm. it's very easy to actually play with physics and get things bouncing around it's super fun but actually make it so it's intuitive and it requires a little bit of mastery to actually do interesting moves with it it's it uh, was certainly a challenge and uh, there's a lot of nuances on the tiny bit of forces that you can actually apply, and how much of that changes overall on the feel of the actual character. Uh, and yeah, the other huge challenge was actually making levels for that. Uh, I wanted to keep it super simple, super concise. There is one goal, you need to master one particular technique per level, and that bit much serves as the tutorial. And yeah, I was able to actually count out uh, 10 levels, and the idea was actually to expand it, but, uh, you know, time is tedious.
0: Mm. Given the fact that you touched pretty much every element of the design, right, from the actual artwork to programming and AI, music, would you say there was one specific area that you found the hardest to work on?
1: Oh,
0: um,
1: uh, music, one of the most interesting. Because you are a musician
0: and, and you have your own, well, you had your own recording studio, but you don't yes. anymore, uh, right?
1: Um, no, I, I I had to sell all my stuff. Yeah, I'm yeah. now pretty much a full-time developer. Yeah, um, but uh, back in the day, I did specialize much more on arrangements, and uh, I was more of a sound engineer. You know, recording bands, mixing, mastering, that yeah. kind of thing. Cool. As a composer, uh, my experience is kind of limited and in very specific uh, genres, and. That's why I had to be very careful about the kind of instruments and the kind of uh, you know, vibe that I was going to be choosing for M2R, if I was going to be doing that for the most part by myself, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, since I do have a little bit of a background in producing electronic music, uh, my best bet was trying to imitate the Prime series. Mm. They were, there weren't that orchestral. Um, if I try to do something similar to the SNES, uh, you know, sound chip and that style, I mean, I did identify that there is a lot of nuance in that particular kind of ambience that I wasn't able to replicate. I knew my limits, but uh, playing with the textures of something that's more synthetic and electronic felt something that I could achieve much more, you know, effectively. Mm. And I went that route. Again, that did take quite a lot of time to produce over time, and some of the techniques and instrument choices did evolve over time also. Mm. So if you try the first couple demos, uh, there is still very subtle changes in how the first couple tracks are mixed and how the instruments are presented. compared to the final product, where all of the sound of the entire game has already been established and all of that has been retroactively applied to the first couple tracks. Um, Again, I was able to properly remaster that uh, soundtrack and release it for free, so if you want to give it a listen, somehow, uh, yeah, you're free to do so.
0: Yeah. So how many iterations would you do? Like, say, you know, because you did a couple of remixes, like Brinstar, you did the Chickalava, boss theme, mm-hmm. like would you just make it and then you'd be done with it or would you go back and refine it?
1: Only when I think it's necessary, yeah. uh, mostly because uh, it's super time-consuming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it's mostly it's not about a matter of quality. It's mostly about how well certain themes vibe between each other in proximity, right? So I approach the, I don't know, the central the area suddenly I'm trapped in a room and the boss music kicks in is this particular boss music too distinct and out of place compared to the previous song after the boss is over is the song that kicks in um, you know part of the same game Uh, you know uh, Mm. soundscape wise you know yeah yeah Uh, that kind of thing you know finding the balance and make it feel uh, like A cohesive kind of soundtrack. Uh, That was mostly about what the actual revisions were about. Compositions, uh, pretty much uh, taking uh, original compositions as a starting point was super, super helpful and it saved a lot of time. And uh, there was uh, a couple of tracks that I did uh, in collaboration with other people, to make them original, and uh, the original area uh, already features uh, new assets that were done from Scratch, original mechanics, and it wouldn't make sense to actually also use uh, original music. So composing via Skype was something that I never imagined I was actually going to do, and uh, you know, uh, the drivers that the music software I use are kind of finicky, and they don't play well with the being able to actually share your audio via stream. Hmm. So having to switch back and forth between devices to actually hit play and have the other people listen. Okay, let's change this particular instrument and let's change a couple of notes. Uh, I'm going to send you the updated uh, project file back and forth, and then okay, gonna render this uh, real quick into MP3. Okay, he goes, and that was super time-consuming. I'm pretty sure now things are more streamlined for live work. But back then, uh, yeah, it was certainly a very interesting process. Time-consuming, but uh, certainly interesting.
0: Mm. One of the things that's a bit of a noose around the original game is the, the Metroid encounters, because they can become very repetitive, right? Mm-hmm. Very quickly. And um, it's it's something that is basically part of the DNA of the original game. So... What was your approach to that to try and avoid or lessen the repetitiveness of the Metroid encounters?
1: Because that, so, um,
0: that would have been hard, yes. I'm sure.
1: It was um, where most of the work went. Um, basically, the ones the, the worst offenders were the alpha Metroids. Mm. The, those happened to be appearing everywhere. Yeah. And uh, you can even if you can apply different uh, uh, arenas around the actual fight, let's add some spikes, lava, whatever, that's going to be adding some variety up to a certain point, right? So, um, I'm not sure if it was enough, but uh, there are a couple of parameters that you can actually properly tweak per particular metro encounter. Mm. So, every single metro encounter has handcrafted parameters, that decide uh, how fast it works, uh, how uh, fast it accelerates, how reactive it is, and uh, how aggressive it is. Uh, there's a specific parameter that uh, pretty much every couple of seconds besides chasing you is going to be taking distance uh, at a specific offset from Samus, And that offset can be changed per Metroid and uh, that single parameter can actually um, change the way you perceive that particular fight. Suddenly, this guy is actually retreating, so it can actually charge attack at you later on. Mm. Although another metric has that uh, below Samus, so if Samus is on top of a platform, the guy is going to be going o- uh, below the platform. And by the time the state ends and regains control, the chase is going to be resuming from the other side of the platform, and suddenly it becomes unpredictable, like a living organism. You know, it's not that. Complicated, but uh, at least that uh, uncertainty in the middle of this uh, very simple step machine adds a little bit of uh, variety. Um, some people find it annoying. Some people find the AI being super bouncy and uh, trying to you know chase like a bee that's you know trying to escape. Again, it's all about uh, making those uh, chases use the tool set that the player has. Uh, In the original Amateur 2, the thing would actually uh, chase at the player in several intervals, pausing every second or so. And that was effective, because your movement options were pretty limited. You didn't have that much range aiming. And uh, yeah, for that particular game engine, it was fine. Um, In this particular uh, iteration, since you can actually aim in 8 directions and you have a lot of mobility, Being able to play with positioning was pretty much the main challenge. So that, uh, in cooperation with the layout of the arena, would make every single fight unique. Are they unique enough? That's something that people, uh, (laughs) you have to ask people. But uh, uh, for me, it it was uh, certainly an improvement over the original.
0: Yeah, well, it's pretty hard. I mean, I can see that even Nintendo struggled themselves with Samus Returns, with trying Mm. to keep it, Diverse. So, was the was the AI particularly hard to program for with the Metroids? Uh,
1: not really. It's uh, if you pretty much break down the AI of the Metroids in their states and what they do, it's super simple.
0: Oh, is it? The thing is,
1: the thing is, they are so um, customizable and. Most of the movements of the Metroids rely on accelerations. Mm. That way, they feel so unpredictable. And since the accelerations do uh, depend mostly on uh, Summers' position, and Summers' position is changing all the time because we need to properly position ourselves uh, to actually deal with the Metroid, it becomes super unpredictable. Suddenly, you have this thingy that's floaty, and you're kind of able to lead the Metroid if you actually jump and move around you're going to be dictating with the Metroid moves, but not as predictably as you think. So it's kind of unpredictable, but uh, overall, it's actually deterministic. One of the many ideas I had from back in the day was to actually make a replay system that would actually allow me to record the file with all the inputs and being able to actually play it back. Something that, that was very imp- inspired by the speedrun community. Mm. Being able to actually, you know, see my video movements and replay something was also going to be a very useful testing tool to replicate certain scenarios and see if the behaviours are actually consistent over builds or over changes. Um, That never came through, but the deterministic factor of very predictable outcomes for the actual Metroid state machine, that's uh, still there. It's super simple, but then again, since it depends on the position of the player, and the player's position is changing all the time. Yeah, it looks very, very organic and mm. quite convincing sometimes.
0: So was that the hardest thing to overhaul, the Metroids? Or was it like environments as well? Like, What was, what was the most challenging thing in terms of overhauling stuff that already existed but really needed to be modernized?
1: Uh, one of the most challenging were the bigger Metroids. The Zeta, the Omega, and yeah. the Queen Metroids. And the Queen, yeah. Those... Those were pretty interesting. <laughs> um, just to display the thing, just to show the thing on the screen. Right. I had to make separate projects on Game Maker. Uh, uh-huh. I was already pushing the the boundaries of GameMaker Maker quite a lot, yeah. and the projects were super heavy. Back then, the Game Maker one point four. Um, whenever I was actually opening the project, it took about five or six minutes just to open the project. Wow. And you, if you if you hit play, the first time it compiles it. About uh, four or five minutes more that it actually needs to, you know, prepare all the assets. Yeah. And then you were actually able to actually play the game. And uh, yeah, that time adds up quite a lot. And if you're going to be iterating just to see if the head is properly aligned with the neck of some creature, it would take forever. So I pretty much made a bare bones project for every single big Metroid, and made some very rudimentary tools for repositioning assets for the every single animation. Right, wow. so we have it's basically like a very rudimentary and very simplified version of a skeletal animation. Uh, so we have a torso, we have some legs that are attached and they have fixed angle. And based on the rotation of the actual torso, you have the position of the head that's going to be following one particular point. Finding that point and applying the rotations of every single sprite was kind of tiresome, but since this was a fresh project and it would compile in just a couple of seconds. I would actually would be able to actually iterate very easily, and uh, I did add quite a lot of shortcuts for you know changing positions and showing the offset on the screen. So whenever I found the right position for the head for this particular state, I would write it down. So it was a minus 6, 14, whatever. Hit stop, go to the script, and then type those positions in that particular animation. It was quite straightforward compared to having to wait almost five minutes to just hit play and have the thing working. Yeah. So, yeah. And I do have a couple of those with very basic, uh, I the actual Queen project, you are actually able to control the Queen with the keyboard. And you have the bari- variable uh, terrain that mm. was just a couple of colliders, uh, just to test what could I achieve with this particular character? Um, the queen is a very interesting character, and the design and the resources that I, I had were very limiting on what I could what I could actually do. I couldn't make a huge chamber because well, by that time Samus has space jump. she can actually fly mm. right And the queen is about three quarters of a screen. If we jump once or twice, we lose sight of the queen, right and um, I didn't have a turning animation. If I go over the queen, right, and land on the other side, how do I actually make it react to... Yeah, yeah, of course. Do I just flip the head and flip the body? Do I actually make her turn like like this or something like that? Yeah. It would be kind of weird. So those limitations in production allowed me to focus on the overall boss design. So it's going to be all about traversal, and make it very horizontal. That's where the Queen works best. And, uh, yeah, the actual uh, theme of destroying the environments you have already traversed came from that particular limitation. And uh, the locomotion of all of that was something that had to be figured out uh, in a very separate project. Otherwise, it would be a pain to actually implement and make it look good.
0: Mm. Did you ever hear any... Times where you were editing something in Game Maker and you forgot to save and it, and you lost all your progress. You have no idea how many times. <laughs> yeah. Like it's how many how many times how many times are we talking, are we talking uh, in the twenties the thirties like hundreds
1: um, like five or five or six but each one of those uh, super painful.
0: Yeah. Was it a yeah. crying moment or a rage moment combination? No, of both? I,
1: I just <laughs> I just collected my thoughts. And uh, for experience, every single time that uh, for example the power goes out mm. and suddenly I lose progress. Uh, oh. I knew that it was going to be that's not the worst. when yeah. it's not your fault, it's the worst. yeah um, every single time that I restarted something from scratch mm. uh, that time when I actually made it, it became better.
0: Mm. Oh, so, right. okay. all
1: in all, if I had to pretty much uh, find some consolation, uh, I would actually think, well, this is an excuse to remake something and make it even better.
0: That's a good way to look I at guess. it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I guess. <laughs> so there were things <laughs> that you implemented, like, there were, what is it, the, the liquid distortion filter that you had? So when you, just mm-hmm. before you get the gravity suit, I think, and then it makes mm-hmm. all the, the whole screen... All distorted? Where did that idea yes. come from?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, there's plenty of games uh, from my youth that use a very specific uh, raster effect. Pretty much you grab pieces of the background and draw them with an offset using a sine wave. And some platformers of the 90s, you would enter the water and some part of the background would be kind of wavy like this. Mm. I did try to replicate that and I failed miserably. Uh so I did try to do something similar, uh, but with the actual uh, image itself. I didn't want to make something that was too obvious or too distracting uh, because there's quite a lot of action going on on the screen and you know shots, enemies, whatever. If I add more noise to the whole image, even with how complicated some of the detail sets and the actual overlay of the water is, it would become a mess readability re- device, right? Right. So what I did was pretty much grab a surface, pretty much a copy of the screen, uh, grab whatever was below a specific uh, height, that would be the surface of the divisible water and below, and then use that uh, and draw it with slight offsets. Uh, to light, uh, I mean, it's the same wavy effect, but super subtle. It's one or two pixels. So it's kind of wavy, but not that much, and it's additive. Since the background is uh, quite dark, all of the elements that are pretty much in play are lighter and mm. it, you get to see like a glimpse of brightness that's kind of wavy, but not that much. It's, it took a little bit of time and uh, iterations to actually get it not distracting and not too obvious. Uh, you can totally miss it, but if you stay there and you get to see that effect, it's there, you know, it's part of the ambience.
0: Mm. Interesting. It's very very interesting. And what about the uh, the power generator area? Oh,
1: how did okay. that come about? That well, pretty much. Uh, I needed to challenge the player in a way that they it put their abilities to the test. And by that time, yeah, the the equipment was pretty much in game, so. The only thing that was able to give the player by that time was the gravity suit. But making a, an entirely underwater area would be super tedious. Mm. Um, underwater movement has always been pretty heavy on yeah. Metroid. Yeah. And I did try to make it, at least the acceleration part, be tedious. And once you actually get reach top speed, you're only running 75% of your actual speed. But getting there and you know jumping and stopping every single time is super tedious. So, um, instead of focusing on that, I left one of the areas underwater, and the rest of the area would actually need to have its own gimmick, right? Uh, so, the, my, pretty much my, my overall idea would be, I've seen uh, some effects in the Prime series, where some enemies will actually obstruct your view, adding noise to your vi- to your visor. And there was one particular enemy in Metal Prime 3 that would actually, uh, if you get hit by that particular electrical enemy, your entire suit resets. And you see a small brief, uh, boot sequence on your visor. Ah, oh, yes, super awesome. yes, yes. And I said, oh, I'm going to steal that idea. That's awesome. Uh, I did something similar to that. So where we have this external factor that's going to be uh, affecting the way your mechanics work. And that's how the static uh, electric energy thingy, those uh, electric fields, uh, came to be. Um, so the original idea for that would be this would only apply in certain locations where I have a stripe of uh, hexagonal uh, sensor thingies on the back side of the wall. If I go through those, uh, suddenly there's noise on the screen and I cannot use any weapons. Suddenly it becomes all about performing. That worked. But it was boring, mm. so I pretty much had to Refine contain it. those particular yeah contain those uh, occurrences of when and why those uh, events happen, right? And uh, one of the ideas I've been you know developing through the years was uh, why spheres in the Joso society, and one of the utilities that they might be using it for might be to just move things around. Maybe they are containers. What if they are energy containers? What if those things are actually batteries? Mm. Would it make sense? Um, Do you have a battery for opening this door? Yeah, I have one spare here. Look, and suddenly the door opens. Okay, let's go. And so yeah, that was pretty much it. That was my excuse. Um, Having this particular element and also making it interact with enemies, since all of the enemies in this area were going to be robotic, no organic elements, that thing would actually work as an EMP of sorts. Suddenly, you had a tactical advantage to actually shoot the thing, generate an electric field that would actually inhibit you from shooting, but if you place that particular thing right, you would ge- be get- getting rid of all of the robotic enemies in the area. So, that kind of came together by itself. And then, yeah, the, the utility of having those spheres interact with the environment, that was, that was just another added bonus. Mm. So, yeah, that's more or less how those elements uh, came to be. The rest was uh, just designing how to introduce that mechanic, how the physicality of those spheres would actually work, and how the uh, player manipulates those to make them reach whatever location you need. Those pretty much are just a st- straightforward small loop where you actually go through all of those uh, situations one after the other, and suddenly you're just back where you started, near a safe point, and with the rest of the game and the area uh, just. Waiting for you to test those abilities.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about the the escape sequence? Like, How did you sit on the duration of it? Like, How long the escape sequence should be? What the layout should be? The boss while you're going through it? What was the approach I with
1: that? I pretty much eyeballed it. I had no idea how <laughs> long it You eyeballed be. it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have all of these chunk of layout, and every single time, I pretty much designed the whole thing backwards. It was not about um, how every single moment would be one after the other, Mm. right? It would be, let's escalate from the most tedious way to stop the player in an urgent situation, right? And uh, take it from there, making it less and less uh, tedious, right? So, once you enter the area, you may see that there's a ton of bomb blocks that you need to bomb every single one of them to actually traverse. And there's one enemy in the middle, and then there's another string of bomb blocks that you need to bomb one by one. Okay, once you are entering the area, and that's part of the mystique of the area, that's okay, right? But, when you have a uh, uh, explosions going around, and a timer that says you're about to die, and suddenly those uh, bomb blocks are just exploding one by one, and you're suddenly you know, feeling the pressure, and suddenly you stumble upon that same stupid enemy, completely changes the context of that particular same room, which is a super harmless room. But then again, you're traversing it in a different situation, and suddenly it becomes much more interesting. Um, yeah, that was pretty much it. It was make something super tedious, then less tedious, then something full of enemies that you need to you know, overcome, and then pretty much shape it into something that pretty much uh, leads towards the bottom of the, the planet. Uh, one thing that I wanted to add was uh, some sort of elevator. Those elevators are pretty much a staple of every single battle game, mm. and this particular elevator just goes from point A to point B. There's no transition between areas; it just goes from top to bottom. Right. And first time you encounter that elevator is for building building up the atmosphere, and you're discovering this mysterious location. Okay, but then when you have the time limit and explosions going on suddenly that elevator goes like so, come on faster 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 come on it, it, it's one of those elements that you know one, you want to you know um, yeah the rest yeah. of the stuff it's about uh, integrating the speed booster which is kind of tricky and uh, preparing the speed booster uh, the necessary space to actually be able to trigger the speed booster it, that's something that's very enjoyable right mm. just uh, oh I don't have enough of the space, let me clear those blocks. Oh, I, now I can actually run and break some blocks. That's enjoyable, that's awesome, that's a piece of a puzzle that you really enjoy in the rest of the game. Here, you have to do it with the time pressure. So those are elements that, uh, in any other context, are fun. In this case, they are kind of stressful. So yeah, it's a combination of those kind of moments. And uh, the boss was always meant to be some sort of, uh, you know, like a cinematic set piece. Something like, oh, come on, really? I'm in the middle of an escape and I have to fight this? <laughs> um, it's, it's all about subverting expectations, you know? It's uh, the typical bosses. Uh, the bosses uh, have a very um, deliberate distribution mm. uh, depending on uh, in which part of the area they show up, right? So the very first area, you come through a very suspicious corridor, nothing happens. And by the end of the area... You cleared all the metros, you go back, and then you fight the boss. Right? Mm. Uh, In the second area, the boss is optional, and it's pretty much in the middle. In the third area, the boss is at the beginning of the area. So you never know when you might be stumbling upon something new, especially the boss. It could be at the beginning of an area, or in the middle, it could be optional. There was this uncertainty that kept things fresh, in my opinion, right? And in this particular uh, moment, Having a boss in the middle of an escape, that's certainly not something that many people expected. So yeah, I'm pretty sure many found it an interesting and pleasant surprise.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know you approached the speedrunning community for for input. What was some of the Mm -hmm. input that the speedrunning community gave to you? Because you implemented a lot of speedrunning and sequence breaks. Yes.
1: Uh, So, I always consider myself a theoretical speedrunner. As in, I, can, I know the potential of some shortcuts and stuff, and I can pull it off once if right. I try it. Don't make me make a run with all of these tricks, one after the other in a consistent run, because I cannot. Yeah. I don't have the skills, I don't have the patience. Some people are insanely skilled for these kind of things, and I do admire them. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I cannot keep up the pace. Uh, There's one particular runner that uh, showed up pretty late uh, during development, and he became one of the lead beta testers. And, yeah, he has the ability to break everything. (laughs) Okay, here's a build with this new mechanic, this new area. Enjoy, have fun. And uh, a couple of hours later, here's a list of all the things I broke. Okay. Wow. Thank you. Uh, It's certainly, for once, it's... uh, it's very demoralizing, it makes me look like a horrible coder to see that all of these uh, very huge mistakes make it through the, the cracks. Uh, but uh, yeah, actually being able to polish all of these situations that empty users would actually eventually stumble upon, that was super reassuring. And just uh, having a different set of eyes and a different set of hands play the game is super, super valuable, because I have a very specific playstyle. I play Metroid, very meticulously sometimes. And uh, going with different things may lead to different situations that I didn't uh, contemplate when creating environments and the actual character controller. So yeah, the input community community uh, both helped into defining what parts of the game could be skippable, and also as uh, very skilled players that would actually push the engine and the environments to its limits.
0: Mm. Because you went from a, being a solo developer to pretty much working in conjunction with a team, right? So, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So what, did you do a crash course in project management or anything or leadership? Or did you Absolutely just kind of learn? not. <laughs> so were you kind of just learning how to manage people as you were doing it?
1: So uh, <clears throat> this was pretty much a natural progression that was parallel to my personal life. Yeah. Uh, by the time... Much more people were showing up as volunteers. I was uh, already started working as a professional programmer. Mm. I have left my recording studio. And as a programmer and as part of a team, the ability to adapt to a work schedule and to a production environment is crucial, right? And uh, knowing from the actual trenches what actual production feels like. Uh, allowed me to use those kind of tools uh, for M 2 R, so suddenly, out of the out of you know thin air, I just had a very urgent need to use something to uh, have some sort of issue tracking. Before before it was just uh, a couple of emails where someone would actually send an email saying, "Yo, this is breaking at this point," okay? I fixed it. Try it out. Oh, it's fixed. Nice. Having some sort of more uh, you know centralized way to manage all of that was super super necessary at that point because there were many volunteers just for that, and also asset production um, there were dependencies, and uh some things needed to be done before others and these people were donating their available free time if I wasn't respectful regarding uh their work and how it would be actually displayed in the game uh, it would be like a disservice to their generosity, you know? Mm,
0: mm. Uh,
1: So, the least I could do is make sure that if they are going to be bothering to draw sprites for some enemy, some assets, some background, uh, I would be doing the best I could to include that in the game and not have it cut, just for time constraints, right? and uh, there was one particular area in the game, the GFS Thoth, the huge uh, ship that's uh, much in the surface, that was pretty much a playground for artists. It was something like, okay, I don't have any design for this, I know that might be a mini boss here, but uh, draw whatever you like, do any machinery you like, make the ambiance however you like, guys, just have fun. Whatever you provide, I'm going to be putting in the game, and I'm going to be making a very simple layout, maybe a couple of scans or something, maybe one e-tank and that's it. But uh, if you want to flex and expand your portfolio, have fun. And they did. So, yeah.
0: Hmm. How did you settle on the law, the story? Like on how to elaborate on it?
1: Okay. Uh, one thing that the uh, Metroid community is, uh, is, is, they are very dedicated and very meticulous about details. Yeah. And thing i wanted to be always is super respectful regarding the uh, the lore of the game Mm. Uh, both the history and uh, how any representation of the galactic federation samus the space pirates if any uh, the Joshua culture all of that needed to make sense because mostly because of respect i wasn't trying to emulate nintendo or whatever is this is something that's loved by many people, the least I can do is produce something that wouldn't be out of place, right? And uh, by that time, there was a very active forum for the project, and many people were much more knowledgeable of the lore than me. So every single decision that I made regarding uh, what things are going to be scanned, what contents there's going to be, uh, there were volunteers that were pretty much dedicated to writing. Uh, since I was, I, I'm not a native speaker and my grammar is, you know, serviceable, uh, many very dedicated fans that were very acquainted with the lore uh, helped me out with writing. And they came up with ideas on how things would actually work, how the biology of the methods would actually work to actually make it make sense, and why would the evolutions happen in this, this particular place. And there was a lot of content. There, there was pretty much a documentary on how the actual letters work. It was fascinating. It was um, like a mixture of uh, techno bubble and natural-, natural geographics, then kind of explaining why this biology works, and all of that was reference material to actually write very concise and interesting logs that show you a little bit of the universe. Mm. There's a lot of uh, information that's not being revealed because it's all, other, in practical terms, it's all fan fiction, right? But uh, establishing the rules and staying within those boundaries, it's it's like having supplementary material for world building. So we only chose the most important things for the player and some flavor text to spice up the actual, you know, development of the entire world. Then again, it was kind of hard because we wanted to make the scans not feel like a wall of text, but something that could be read, okay, I'm getting informed about this particular organism, it makes sense in this context, let's move on. I get what the weak point is or what strategy I need to follow to defeat it. Okay, move on. Um, so, yeah. Mm. yeah there, was, there was a very active community and uh, I'm super grateful for the help.
0: Mm. Have you played Metroid Dread yet? Yes. How did you, how did you find it? Interesting. In terms of, in terms of what?
1: <laughs> I mean... <clears throat> I'm not entirely sure if the Emmys were something that would make sense in Metroid. Right. The concept is amazing, right? But if you mix something like survival horror with a huge monster that can one hit kill you, you need to feel vulnerable, right? Think of the first couple of Resident Evils with tank controls and very limited ammo. And you stumble a couple of zombies, uh, you shock them off, but your health is very limited, right? You're feeling that tension, right? That dread. Mm. But suddenly, if you're a space hunter that can leap around and jump and uh, have very, very maneuverable moves and you happen to be able to wall jump and run super fast, that changes the dynamic a lot. Suddenly the monster has to, has to move at the same pace as you. And suddenly the fail state is faster to achieve, right? So in a run of Resident Evil or any other survival horror, you take a couple of minutes to explore and suddenly you see the monster and you try with your very limited resources and mobility to escape and hide and be tactical about your choices. You have time to think and act, right? But since uh, Samus is so snappy, and the actual is have to be snappier than her to compensate, you don't have those metal gear moments of you know stealth and uh, you know taking action. You're pretty much reacting to things, so it's uh, a very cat and mouse thing that happens so quickly that uh, for once it's distinct and unique. But uh, it's also kind of annoying, in my humble opinion. <laughs> and that's Purple Amy.
0: It's, so um, so I take it you died a lot then. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> but what did you in, in terms of someone who's obviously developed your own Metroid game? How did you find the mobility of Samus I, in terms it's of
1: super polished? Yeah. I mean, I I I can tell you the first 10 minutes of the game of my playthrough was on the first screen. I was giggling like a little girl and how Samus would actually go through Uh, just running, and suddenly she would actually... slide. No, 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 there was a ledge that was, you know, one meter uh, high, and she would actually step on it. And it was, this is the stuff I did, but mine requires to use the jump button. And they actually animated it dynamically. And I was like an idiot, just running around on that stupid ledge, one block ledge. Mm. And suddenly there's a lot of subtlety in that animation. And if you just you know, uh, the running speed for Samus is fixed, right? Yeah. But if you push against that ledge, right, and gently push the stick, the animation of uh, going up that ledge changes depending on how much you press. It's a stupid detail, but it's there. It's awesome. And it was like an idiot five minutes playing with that stupid ledge there. It was, (laughs) you know, uh, there's so many details in animation and how they characterize Samus from a, you know, visual design, from the from, just from the animation, it's very well characterised, it's, it's acting. And these people pull it off flawlessly, in my opinion.
0: Hmm. So do you find that with any Metroidvania game that you worked on? Like, or any Metroid game that you play? A Metroidvania game, I should say. right? Do you end up kind of critiquing it and being like, hmm, what would I do? If I was making this game, what would I do or we'll change?
1: It's kind of like... The, the developer in the- you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the curse of the movie maker, you know, if you're a director and suddenly your way of looking at film is different, right? And suddenly you see, oh, here comes the exposition dump, oh, oh here comes the megaphone, oh, this is the clear cut between Act 2 and 3, come on, man, do better. <laughs> uh, something like that kind of happens, but every once in a while I just turn my brain off, uh, put myself into a consumer mode, if you wish, and just enjoy uh, I kind of miss that in games, being able to be surprised with, you know, something that doesn't need to be critically, critically analyzed.
0: Yeah, because are you able to, when you're developing a game, are you actually able to enjoy it? Does it ever get to a point where it becomes a bit monotonous, whether it was AM2R or even with um, Ori, right? You when know, you're just working times... on it for so long.
1: Yeah, you know, the first times when you create an element and get it working, oh, that's amazing. The first couple of times, it's beautiful. It's ah, something new. Awesome. Right. Awesome. And then the first, fifth time, tenth time, it's not fun anymore. And suddenly, yeah, um, you get burned out very quickly. Mm. Totally. That's why it's so important to actually get fresh eyes because I'm so tired of, you know, trying the same things over and over. And sometimes it's hard to identify what feels fresh and what feels stale in the same game because everything feels stale, everything feels you know, boring by that time. Uh, you can identify what might be interesting, and uh, that's maybe why I keep throwing new things and mechanics to the player uh, so often, because I get bored pretty easily by the end of the day. Um, then again, it's all about pacing, you know, um, this also kind of imitates how dynamic uh, zero mission fears that's pretty much the main inspiration and going moment by moment and area by area how many new things are going to be seen by the player how many new environments how, new, how many new uh, enemy types bosses and how much time does it do uh, you need to actually be exposed to this uh, kind of new content um, I did try to replicate that and to keep the pace going uh, otherwise uh, yeah people are going to be getting bored
0: yeah. Fair enough. Well, hey, I'll wrap up there because um, I, know, I know it's evening there and you've got to <laughs> have dinner and do your other things, I'm sure. Um, so, best to follow you, Twitter, I suppose. Is that the best place to follow you?
1: Yes. Yep. Um, and please, um, please do apologize to me. If I don't respond right away, um, Twitter requires me to go through all of the messages and approve them. Uh, this same meeting should have happened a couple months ago. And, uh, <laughs> it's all right.
0: Yeah. It's all right. It's sorry. It's, it's no problem. Well, <laughs> hey, I appreciate you taking the time out and everything that you've done. As I as I said before, I'm I'm stoked that your career has taken off. It'll be interesting to see where you are in another ten years. Uh,
1: let's repeat this part same uh interview ten years from now. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. I but like either either way, it's it's been great to chat to you and pick your brain on on your journey. <laughs> but um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, that is the show. Everyone, make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe.